How do textiles shape society? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Virginia Postro. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Virginia Postro. Virginia is an author, columnist, and speaker whose work spans a broad range of topics from social science to fashion. She concentrates on the intersection of culture, commerce, and technology. She has been a columnist for The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, The New York Times, and Forbes, and its companion technology magazine, Forbes ASAP. She is the author of many things, including The Power of Glamour, Longing and the Art of Visual Persuasion, The Substance of Style, and The Future and Its Enemies. She's a regular columnist for Bloomberg Opinion and contributes columns on history and material culture to reason. She is also the author of The Fabric of Civilization, How Textiles Made the World. That will be coming out one week after this episode airs on November 10th. I was lucky enough to have a sneak peek, so it will form the basis of much of our conversation today. Virginia, welcome to The Curious Task. Great to be with you. So, Virginia, we base each episode on a question and go wherever the conversation and answers take us. Our question today is, how do textiles shape society? So let's do some quick context on your uh, on, on your book, and, we'll, and that'll kind of set us up for a deeper dive into some specifics a little later. So let me start by, by saying, you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about a lot of different things. Uh, a lot of those things tend to relate to what makes society progress and what builds society. But we certainly haven't focused on textiles yet. So I'm happy we're talking with the person who's literally written the book on this one. But let's start by telling us why you think this is an overlooked piece of history and, and why it's important to keep that in mind as we get into our discussion today. It, does, it doesn't strike most people as obvious that this is the topic we have to talk about if we want to understand some historical context. But your book makes it clear that that indeed it's important and we should not overlook it. Right. So so. The biggest reason that we tend to overlook textiles is that we have so many of them and they're so cheap and they're everywhere. And just look around the room and see what you see that's made of cloth because it's not just your clothes. Like I see a placemat, I see a, a, a book bag, I see a sofa, a cushion, all of these things around where I am. Uh, textiles are everywhere. And particularly in the past few decades, become incredibly cheap. And they've been cheap by historical standards uh, for well over 100 years. So that's one reason. And then another reason is that the textile industry in the Americas, or at least in North America, has become much smaller than it used to be. So I actually grew up in a textile center in the Carolinas and text, people did think about textiles then, but most of those factories, not all of them, but most of those places that were in the Southern US have lost that business to places, particularly in Asia, but also in Latin America. So it's less likely that your parents work in the textile industry. So that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's another thing. And then, so those are the reasons why right now we're less conscious of textiles, uh, whereas in 1920, we would have been, or 1880, they would have been hugely important and everybody mm -hmm. would have been thinking about them. Um, the other reason goes into prehistory. 
And there you're talking about archaeology and when we talk about the Stone Age and these things. And that has to do with what survives. Textiles tend to decay. They tend to fall apart over time. And until relatively recently, um, really the 1990s, a lot of archaeologists paid no attention whatsoever to textiles to the point that they would actually destroy them inadvertently, but they would clean things up in ways that would destroy evidence that would be preserved today. Um, So we have this false sense of the past as being, uh, of the distant past as being all things that are, were hard, (laughs) lots of stones and no string. But as as I point out in, in the book, what we call the stone age could just as easily be called the string age, because that was an incredibly important technology very early on was the the ability to twist at that point plant fibers into cord um, that wasn't textiles but it was the first component you need to make textiles and once you have string there are all kinds of things you can do that you couldn't do before including making tools where you take a, a stone and attach it to a handle. Right. And, and to further that point, I, I, I pulled this quote from the book that I want to read here. It's 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 sort of a, both a historical point, but also a cultural point that how much we again, we take for granted that this how intertwined this story is. And we're never being able to escape the puns, I realize. Yes. No, you can't. You can't escape. the yeah, puns. How intertwined the story is with with our discussion. That's actually, that's what the quote's about. So you say uh, we, we drag out heirloom metaphors with no idea that we're talking about fabrics and fibers. We repeat uh, threadbare cliches, whole cloth hanging by a thread, dyed in the wool. We catch airline shuttles, weave through traffic, follow comment threads. We speak of lifespans and spinoffs and never wonder why drawing out fibers and twirling them into thread looms so large in our language. And I, re- I really love that. It's, it's, as soon as I read that, I stopped and went, wow, okay. That's a that's a good setup. I will say there is one cheat there because loom so large in our language is actually not from the word loom. It's from the same word that means light, like illuminate. That, oh, okay. That I didn't know but, that. But, but, but I couldn't that. resist it. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> but all the other ones really are textile metaphors. <laughs> yes. It's, it's, it's stuff we just pass over every day, as you were saying, right? Like, it's yeah. crazy. You also go on to say in the book that the global story of textiles illuminates the nature of civilization itself. Can you get into a little bit more of what you exactly meant by that there? Yeah, and this was actually kind of an interesting thing because I wrote the book, I submitted the manuscript, and then as you probably know, the the editor reads it and gives you comments. And one of the comments that my editor made was, you know, I think in the beginning, you need to talk more about what you mean by civilization because mm. it's called this fabric of civilization. And I realized that in the course of researching the book, I actually had thought a lot about what civilization is. And um, obviously, the word has many different terms, uh, many different meanings, but I, I'm using it in a sort of non pejorative or non judgmental form. I don't mean civilization is good and barbarism is bad. It's not that right, sort right. of thing. And neither is it sort of. Uh, inevitable progress of civilization, but rather civilization is this kind of survival technology that is cumulative. I mean, those were the two elements that I pull out in there. And I actually have a a column coming out in Reason, uh, I guess in about a month, that will amplify on this some, uh, some more about civilization. But from thinking from 
studying textiles in the way that I did made me explore how human beings lived and conveyed, built and conveyed knowledge all around the world over a long period of time. And that then led me to think about what do we mean by civilization? And the, the two elements, as I said, are that it's cumulative. It's something that's shared and, and it, it can change radically. So the example I give is that we can say that the Western Europe of 1980 and the Christendom of, I forget what I use, but say 1480, uh, are a continuous civilization that we can identify as sort of Western civilization. But they're radically different in almost every respect, everything from their politics to their religious beliefs to their uh, their knowledge of the world, their uh, their uh, music, anything you can think of is is different, and yet it's continuous. It's a continuous civilization that's built on itself. So the culture has changed, but the civilization is there. So there's this continuous element, and you do lose civilization. Sometimes civilizations disappear, and their knowledge base is lost. And one thing that I, I don't talk, I don't emphasize in the book, but one thing that I was struck by is I have this chapter on merchants, and it starts with what are called the old Assyrian archives, which are these uh, tablets, uh, cuneiform tablets that are 4,000 years old and that record the various, their letters and, and business documents, basically. And they record the practices of a, of a merchant community in what is now Turkey that was engaged in long distance trade. And one thing that's striking is how in the Middle Ages, a lot of these practices basically had to be reinvented uh, and when Europeans had long distance trade because there was no continuous civilization from the old Assyrian to medieval Europe, that, that these things were lost. And so that that was is one element of, of civilization. It's this cumulative uh, building up of knowledge. And I think that's, that's, that's really important to uh, understand. And then it's a survival technology. It's something that allows human beings to survive against hostile nature and also to survive against hostile humans. So we have the, the cumulative aspect and the survival aspect. And I guess as you looked at, and as people will see in the book, if, if they go read it, I guess as you looked at textiles uh, moving through history, you saw that it was, again, deeply connected to like both of these elements that you observe make up civilization, the cumulative aspect and the survival yeah. aspect. So right. the, 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 the story of textiles, I guess, is also the story of civilization in a way, as you were right. saying. Yeah, yeah, it was a great lens. And, and I understand much more um, about the nature of civilization and, and history, having gone through this process of researching the book. And while reading the book wouldn't be exactly the same process, I hope that readers will come to have a similar experience just from reading the book. Right. Well, I, I, I've certainly felt that I did. So that's one. That's good. That's yeah. good. Good start. <laughs> yeah, good start. Okay. So you, in your book, you, you say that each chapter can be read separately. And you say just like a, a single strip of like kente cloth, but the, the whole, you can look at it one strip, but it also reveals a greater pattern. And as I went through the book, that became very true and clear to me, I found at least. Uh, and we, we can probably spend a whole episode together on each chapter and then some. That's really what I felt <laughs> when I read through the book. But since, of course, we don't have enough time for that, and since people should have 
of course, go and check out and buy the book instead of just listening to us today as well, as in addition to, I should say, I figured we could spend at least some time touring like the main pillars of your book at a high level right? and, and we sure. can discuss them and, and tell basically people what they're in for when they get into the book. So, so, so let's start with fiber. And if you don't mind, I'd like to kick you off with, of course, one of your own quotes here. And I thought it was really great. The journey to finished cloth begins with plants and animals bred by trial and error to produce unnaturally abundant fiber suitable for making thread. These genetically modified organisms are technological achievements, every bit as ingenious as the machines we honor as the Industrial Revolution. That's the quote. Can you tell us a bit more about the beginning of this journey and why that statement will bear true as a reader reads through that chapter? So in many ways, The Fabric of Civilization is a book about innovation. I mean, it could be read in different ways, but that's mm-hmm. one of the, the thoughts running through it is where do, what are important innovations how do they happen how do they build on each other all all that sort of thing and it I, I think I should explain a little bit about the structure so basically as, as that quote suggests you we're going to have a journey from fiber to finished cloth and then to the people who use it so you start with fiber which you have to have and then you have thread cloth and dye you don't have to dye after cloth hence dyed in the wool but for reasons of the structure of the book it made sense to put it that way and then you have your cloth and then it goes into the marketplace and so then there's the chapter on merchants and there's a chapter on consumers so you have kind of the supply and the demand Uh, i didn't only want to talk about production there tends to be a lot of people when they write about textiles or write about anything they talk about how you get the stuff made and then that's the end of it. Right. I wanted to talk about the rest. It's made, it's bought, end of story. That's the way a lot of people treat it. Exactly. And then there's a chapter on called Innovators, which starts with the development of polymers and, and bring looks at things that are happening today. But to, to keep the structure of the book was really important because I wanted to write about textiles from prehistory to the near future and all over the world. And of course, that's not a book, that's a library. So the question is, how do you do a book? Right. So I had this structure of the, the journey of the cloth, but then I also have each chapter has a theme. So as you suggested uh, in the quote you read, the, the theme of the first chapter in, in a nutshell is there's no such thing as natural fibers, that, that we need to start appreciating the artifice that goes into even the most ancient biological fibers. Um, And not just the artifice, I have some fascinating stuff about the weird genetics of cotton and how it really shouldn't exist, but it does because of random events. Um, And that wasn't because of human beings, human beings made it better, but, um, but if you look at the natural state, the uh, un, uninterfered with state of the plants and animals from which we get biological fibers, it's not very promising for, uh, uh, for much cloth production. So human beings had to tinker with it. And they, in many cases, they did it over a very long period of time. So with sheep, Sheep used to be mostly hairy as opposed to 
fleecy, which is a distinction that's easier to understand if you see the difference. But if you think about your hair on your head, um, it wouldn't be very easy to spin into thread because it doesn't it, 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 well, it depends on your hair, but right, right. it doesn't adhere very easily uh, for the most part. Um, or your cat's hair or your dog's hair. People do that, but it's not ideal. Um, but people bred these sheep so that the kind of, of, of sort of fleecy, easier to spin uh material was more abundant and more and more and more abundant. And the other thing is uh, they use, it seems that people got the idea that sheep would be a good thing to get fiber from because sheep used to molt. That is, they would, you didn't shear them. They just, the, the stuff would fall off and it would catch on the bushes and you could collect it and make stuff out of it. So they also bred them so that they would have more, um, more, fleece and could eventually be sheared. So the molting goes on for a long time and actually in sort of ancient times, that is, say when the cuneiform tablets were written uh, 4,000 years ago, people had bred sheep to produce fleece, but they were still plucking them. They would actually, you'd get the sheep and you'd pull out because it was kind of loose. Like when I had chemo and my hair fell out, <laughs> um, it was kind of, and, and, or, or there's certain kinds of dogs and cats that sort of have certain seasonal. Right. Um, Far off hair. from the sheep shearing competitions we see today, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> and I have this contrast in, I have contrasting pictures in the book of, uh, I, I think it's pronounced soy sheep, which is the closest to the sort of untampered with sheep that we have today. And it's this little skinny thing with kind of hair kind of molting off and this giant Merino, you know, sheep, which is where, uh, which is highly, a highly artificial animal. Yeah. So both breeding the, the plants and animals and getting them so they would generate fiber and, and be healthy in the with plants especially there's a there's a big concern about all kinds of pests and diseases and finding ones that are resistant to that and and then also how you process them that was another element of how you get flax out of how do you get flax that you can use to make thread with out of the flax plant and it involves a lot of steps um and it's sort of hard to, to believe that people came up with it but they did very early on actually um so that that's uh, that's the the first uh, main, main chapter right and and i'm looking at the time here and i know i'm just looking ahead to our pacing we're not even at the halfway <laughs> we're never gonna we're, we're not at the halfway point even yet but i know i have to move us along for that i'd love to keep talking about fiber but I, let me just say before we leave the point that all this and more in the book right folks listening that like as virginia set up a great bunch of questions basically textiles could have been the thing that that wasn't unless it, but for like sort of human innovation and, and, and interest very interesting things at the very beginning so i thought that chapter was was very interesting so so when people read that they'll definitely see that the story unfolds quite amazingly from there then we we need to shift gears and, and move to move to thread to keep keep our time pace here but also thread is, is quite interesting in itself so again at a high level can you take us through sort of a teaser uh what we can learn about 
thread in, in the chapter that you're about to describe. And, and again, why it's so, so important. Yeah. So one thing I discovered by researching this chapter is why was it such a big deal that the Industrial Revolution or, or why was it revolutionary to have mechanized spinning? I mean, why was that the thing? Um, it, I mean, there were grain mills. Uh, why wasn't that? And grain is important and flour is important. Why wasn't that? And the reason is it takes an unbelievable amount of thread to weave or knit. Knitting comes later, but to anything, even the tiniest thing. Um and my most recent calculation was for a bandana. This isn't in the book, but I'm making a video about bandanas. A bandana is 22 inches square. It has about uh, 100 threads per inch running in each direction. So it's 200. If it were a sheet, you'd call it a 200 thread count. There's three quarters of a mile uh, or one and a quarter kilometers, basically, of thread in a bandana. And before the Industrial Revolution, the fastest spinners, the best spinners, fastest spinners in the world were Indian spinners, especially with cotton. And they could spin about 100, 100 meters an hour. They could spin 100 meters an hour, which basically when you do the math, it comes out that it would take them 24 hours of work to spin enough thread to make a bandana. And that's just a tiny little thing. For jeans, it comes to a pair, enough thread to make a pair of jeans is like 13 eight hour days to make a, a twin bed sheet, 59 days. And again, these are the fastest spinners. These are the Indian spinners. Who and, and just for the, clarification, we mean in India, Indian in this case, the usage we mean from India. Yes, I mean from India. Yes. India was, uh, India is very, very important in the history of textiles, um, both in and of itself and as a huge influence on the competition from Indian cottons were was kind of a revelation to Europeans. So they're very important in the history of textiles. Uh, and they were a sort of textile superpower for a long time, um, which is, I don't really talk about this, but it, the loss of that status was kind of traumatic to Indians. And there's a lot of literature about, you know, was it colonialism? And I don't, you know, there were definitely elements of of colonial policy that were not necessarily good for India's economy. On the other hand, the the productivity gains of the Industrial Revolution were overwhelming. There, there was no way that Indian hand spinners could compete with these machines just in terms of the amount of thread. Now, you could have built spinning mills in India, but, but you were going to lose that, except for high you know luxury goods you're you're not going to maintain that kind of 100 meters an hour level of spinning uh, because even at poverty wages that makes cloth incredibly expensive so the chapter on thread is basically about how before the industrial revolution women around the world spent all their time spinning 
It was just like a thing you did. Everybody did it. Even rich ladies did it. It was just because there was never enough thread. And uh, there are other things in, in the um, in the chapter as well, particularly about silk. Uh, but that's a big theme of that chapter. It's it's very much about sort of productivity gains and and, and why it matters and why it matters that cloth cloth is a high leverage thing because it's not just clothes it's also sails it's sacks for putting flour in especially in the world before plastics the, the cloth was used for a tremendous number of things and I'm, I'm glad you actually mentioned women specifically because before we left the point on thread i actually wanted to pick up on a like well, i guess a common thread and again we're never escaping the puns in the story of thread um and it's and it's as you mentioned there uh, quickly and alluded to it, it's basically uh the tale of, of of woman as part of this as being the most skilled in this area. You, I think you mentioned in the book somewhere that sometimes like there's a certain historical lens that when we look at, for instance, like a, a woman with like a thread spinner, let's say we say like, ah, ah, look, you know, as we can see, this woman is is portrayed as as sort of the, the housemaid and then deter her husband, right? She's taking care of of wifely duty. Some people have that lens when they approach it, but but you encourage the reader, and I found this very interesting in the book to once they understand the his, the proper historical context really around some some of the, these portrayals what they're actually looking at is is somebody in a position of very skilled labor at times it's it's not just like that woman spun i mean as you said some people could do it for leisure etc but there were also very skilled women this was a skill this activity it was a skill it was also kind of a universal skill so it's it's not uh, uh, there there are other skills that i discuss in the book like certain types of weaving that are much more difficult than spinning. I mean, now I personally find I tried to learn to spin and it's very difficult to learn. Right. But if you start learning it when you're a little kid and you do it your whole life, you can get pretty good at it. Um, but it was incredibly important. And it was until the 19th century, if people wanted to have I an icon of industry. You know, people would make these paintings, allegory of industry right. and commerce. And industry would be a woman spinning because that was what it meant to be industrious, was to be spinning. And unlike weaving, weaving sometimes is done by men, sometimes it's done by women, sometimes it's done by both. It depends on the culture. But spinning has almost always and everywhere been done by women. I don't know why. No one does. <laughs> people have theories, but uh, maybe no people have to sure. have to read Stephen Horowitz's uh, Hayek's Modern Family to figure that out. <laughs> That's a really good book about the, the, how uh, gender roles yeah, over time was right. part of that. That was interesting. Um, and you know what? That's actually an excellent point to take our break. So I think we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Virginia Postrel today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. As always, feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Daniel Beer, Danny Leroy, and Darcy Giroux. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Virginia Pastrell today. So, so Virginia, in the first half, I, we gave some context uh, to, to the whole discussion today. You introduced your book. We discussed fiber. We discussed thread. 
Um, next up in the book is, is cloth and dye. But you know, I'm actually again for the interest of time. I actually want to want to park that for a second. I just wanted to, I just wanted the listener to hear, so I didn't jump right ahead of it. Hey, how did we get to to traders? Because that's what I was going to talk about next. Yeah. If we have extra time, we'll get back to it. But again, this this is a jam packed episode as the book is jam packed. So so I'm going to move us ahead to to traders. That's one chapter in your book. And again, I'm going to kick us off with a quote. Uh, you say. By enabling peaceful exchange, these economic and legal institutions permit larger markets and, with them, the division of labor that leads to variety and abundance. They are as essential to prosperity and progress as anything devised in a workshop or a laboratory. Along with the economic benefits come less material gains, giving humans new ways to think, act, and communicate. And once again, driving the invention, we find the desire for textiles. So... That quote relates to basically what traders were serving, and that's where I wanted to go with that. Like, what what needs and things like that they were serving. There's a there's a chapter about about consumers later, but if you think of that trader supply side, if you will, for a sec, I have a bunch of notes here because the chapter is very interesting, and and you noted things that again maybe not just for textiles, but definitely certainly very related to it, and if not in most cases, mostly related to it. I was surprised to see how many. Things happen in the background, if you will, the business to business side in modern parlance of, of the industry in history, especially as it related to uh, textiles and other things that traders traded. Um, you know, we have lots of things we could talk about, for instance, like cloth at one point was used as currency. Maybe we'll just start with that. That was an interesting point. Yeah, this was fascinating. And <laughs> the way I le- learned about this was I was at a conference at the China National Silk Museum um, on the the Silk Road, which is a is a somewhat anachronistic term because it was only coined in the 19th century to describe medieval trade between right. east and west, and it's not a road; it was a lot of different routes. Uh, but it serves the Chinese government's purposes these days, and they lavishly fund this very good museum right. <laughs> uh, in Hangzhou, and they've had some excellent conferences. Anyway, so I was sitting at lunch with uh, a woman who was from the British Museum. I was like, oh, what do you, whose name is Helen Chang? Um, and what do you study? And she somewhat embarrassingly, she said, well, I'm actually not a textile historian. I actually study um, money. I, I study money on the Silk Road. And I was like, you study money? And it turned out that she's one of her specialties was study or they, that they had, she had organized a journal um, issue that included articles about the use of textiles as money. And when, I, and this was in China. And when I say the use of textiles as money, I do not mean barter. I mean, actual money. That is uh, standard units, standard sizes, standard um, lengths, standard weave patterns, uh, units of account, uh, all of the things pretty much stores of value, the the characteristics we have, it's, it's cloth as currency. And it turns out, as I looked into it, it was not only done in China, uh, separately, uh, there were standard currencies, cloth currencies developed in the tra- in West Africa that were traded sort of, th- there was this cross-Saharan trade um, uh, between sort of the area that's now sort of Ghana and the Ivory Coast, that kind of general area and the, the 
sort of North African areas. And in West Africa, a lot of the textiles are made where they're, they're woven in strips that are maybe about four to six inches wide and then they're and then those strips are sewn together in a, into a larger cloth but for the currency they would set they would just weave a standard size strip and then they'd roll it up and these rolls were great they were easy to transport and uh, and and there's all kinds of stuff if people are interested in you know how money works that you can see in the patterns with these currencies and then one that some of your listeners may have heard of because it's occasionally comes up with, I think David Friedman has written about it, uh, is in Iceland. Uh, there was also uh, a uh, currency, a cloth currency. And these are all, and again, these are not just barter. These are standard units that are primarily used to exchange. Although the fact that they have an alternative use does it sort of keeps a check on the money supply in certain ways. <laughs> and again, there we have textiles woven into the fabric of civilization right then right, and there. Right? Right. You could, that proves you can have a conversation about something that has nothing to do with textiles and still hit textiles from a completely yeah, different angle. Exactly. And this was in Asia, Africa, and Europe. And, and I wouldn't be surprised, I don't know about any, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were also places in Latin America where they were used, but I don't right. know of any. And, and another interesting point too was that I noted as I went through this chapter was, was, was things like services, businesses, and business practices being built right on top of cloth, basically, and either the necessity for trading it, and if, if not just that in that case, at least in large part, again, due to, due to cloth. So for instance, things like regular mail, bills of exchange, when you talk about the way a lot of trade practices and, and business practices developed, you have cloth right alongside a, a lot of these things. So maybe we could talk, for instance, about uh, j just the concept of, of, of regular mail and, and, how, and how that developed, uh, again, at a high level and, and where we find cloth in this interesting story once again. So in the stories I talk about are in kind of early modern Europe, particularly centered in Italy, uh, but into what's now Germany and other parts, uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, uh, all the great trading uh, places of early modern Europe. And but it started in Florence. The Florentine merchants decided, hey, we need to be able to communicate long distance in a regular fashion. And so we, they developed uh, this, this mail service that was called uh, Scarcella, which is based on, that's the name of the bag, actually. The, 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 and they had regular, you know, it was regular dates. They hired guys and horses and they had their own regular mail service and it, it expanded. And it's it's not the only mail service that existed because people would have diplomatic service too, but for regular sort of regular people, if you will, people who are not states or popes or well, I guess the pope was a state in those days, but um, this this was a major form of of regular mail service. And then also in really ancient times, again with the cuneiform tablets, that they had. They were doing, it wasn't regular, but they were, they were definitely developed methods of correspondence and um, they had clay envelopes that you could tell if they had been tampered with and they were using them for contracts too. So all these kinds of things that, and, and this is because textiles are traded long distance from very early times and pretty much 
all over the world. And, and, and so people, if you want to trade long distance, you need to be able to do things like communicate with your agents elsewhere, um, and, as well as move money back and forth, move your goods and move your proceeds. How do you do that? Uh, do you have to do it by actually physically moving specie? Or are there other ways that you can do it? Um, and then there's books of you know, how do you have accounting? How do you know if you're making money? How do you know if you're losing money? How do you know if you're being robbed by your agents? Those kinds of things. They uh, So a lot of these business practices, they're not they could have developed in a different industry and there were industries that were going along that often the company textiles, textiles, uh, spices and, and dyes, which were actually often considered the same thing in many, in many places. Um, uh, but textiles were so important in long distance trade that they are where you find a lot of the development of these business practices. Again, each chapter sort of takes us across in, into different time periods and different places. But I found like it was very interesting. The one discussion in that chapter as well is that th as this sort of became in, in a very serious way, like very complex supply chains with, you know, again, bills of exchange going places, financial institutions, people figuring out how to game the system with certain types of percentages of interest and all this stuff. Right. Lots of different tiers of this, uh, again, supply chain, if you will, developed. And then one, one part I kind of found amusing, at least, was, of course, you know, stories not too unfamiliar to today in any industry someone can think of, but people uh, on, um, and we'll get to consumers in a sec, but you had sort of the, the manufacturers and the traders on the one side and the cons and of course consumers on another but then you had like this discussion that you went into in the in a chapter a little bit there about middlemen and how a lot of people started getting quite upset at these people that that basically just made their uh, made made their their living uh, essentially on taking textiles from somewhere from a business or whatever case could be a different merchant perhaps and giving it to someone else kind of figuring out how to again base their entire livelihood on an industry that they didn't create, but again, could benefit from. I found that very interesting too. Right. And people hate middlemen. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and yet they're really essential. Mm -hmm. And particularly in, in in the production of textiles, one of the things that's a major factor is you have to have working capital because there's this long process between, I mean, think about from the time you plant the cotton, say, to the time you sell a cotton textile or linen or wool or whatever it is. There are a lot of steps in there, and there's a lot of distance between when you make the various investments and when the money actually comes in. So people have worked out various ways of financing this over over time, and sometimes it's with a middleman who is sometimes not beloved because people it, people don't like being dependent on them, and yet they are often. Right. And, and again, I think, as you said, like uh, sometimes sometimes hated, but always loved in also a certain way in the sense that they are uh, essential to some degree. I think today yeah. with our modern lens, we sort of think of, you know, we're always talking about the death of bricks and mortar, which is looked at as a middleman, right? Where we're used to, you know, one click purchasing and in some areas of the world, drones are delivering Amazon packages right to us, right? Uh, and, and it just becomes a thing where um, we're not talking about FedEx planes hundreds of years ago. We're not talking about Amazon drones. We're talking about Someone's got to take that across the desert. Someone's got to take that from Edinburgh to uh, uh, to Glasgow, you know, like, and so this was an essential part of the whole process, the, the, sh the, the handling of these goods, the middlemen that would deal them. Right. It's very interesting. Yeah. And there were things like, I mean, some of the distances also think about distances being much greater in those days than 
today. So some of these distances are like from places in the countryside where textiles are produced to London right. to sell. Well, I mean, today you could get on a train or get in a truck or a, a car and it would be no problem. And of course, you could transfer money electronically. But some of these issues are are a big deal. And also there were regulations. So they would say, well, we you can only sell in this market in London. If you're not from London, you can only sell in this one place and only on certain days. And so partly the middlemen were a way of, well, who's going to keep your goods if that if you don't sell them over that those three days where the market is open, do you have to take them back with you or can you leave them and maybe somebody could sell them for you while you're there? Right. So there's a whole set of sort of like tacit local knowledge, if you will, yeah. developed by these people that was essential to yeah, the and process. Yeah, and that's one of the major su- the services that they supply, which often their clients don't entirely appreciate, understand, appreciate is they'll, they'll tell them, well, we're seeing this kind of textile is, is people are having demand for this and we're not having demand for this. And we have, and I have examples from this middleman discussion, but it also reminds me of another discussion, which is actually in the consumer chapter, which is about a a guy who is trading textiles, a, 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 British guy who's trading textiles for slaves in Africa, and he's trading with Africans uh, who are giving him slaves and taking his textiles, and he's communicating back to the people in England saying, look, they don't like this guy's stuff. They like this guy's stuff. Right. This is I can sell this color. I can't sell this color. You know, these are not just you can't just give them anything that you want to foist on them. These are savvy consumers and they have, they have specific tastes. And if I don't give them what they want, they're not going to take it. The version of a couple hundred years ago where guys like, look, I'm trying to run a business here. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Well, there's always the thing of like, why don't you make what I can sell? Why don't you sell right. what I can make? You know, exactly. <laughs> what I make. That's a give and take. Um, that is, again, as we learned from your book, was always there, hasn't gone away. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very right. Cool. Yeah. So there's even that from the, in the old Assyrian archives. <laughs> And actually, you mentioned the consumer thing, and I think that's such a perfect segue into that, right? So uh, in moving away from the traders chapter, let, let's talk a bit about the uh, the consumers chapter. Again, I, I have a quote I'd like to kick us off with here. So, and I think it's an excellent point. Uh, it's quote, without consumer desire, the story of textiles is incomprehensible and incomplete. Uh, the labor of spinners and weavers, the ingenuity of breeders, mechanics and dye chemists, and the risk-taking ventures of merchants are not ends in themselves. They exist to serve the users of cloth. And I and I thought that was an excellent point because, again, someone might listen to this and say, well, that's obvious. But it's one of those things that's obvious when you point it out, especially since when we talk about things like the Industrial Revolution or you look at the Wall Street Journal or Business Insider or something like that, There's there's always a if you will, very much supply side talk, right? These guys are producing this. These guys are putting this to the market. There's a whole supply chain that involves getting this to this shelf. All of this is useless unless there's demand for this. All of this is useless unless someone is saying, as you said, could be across the world. No, I want this color. And that's a that right. was a huge driving force and, and a very important part of the story. Hence, you spent a whole chapter on it. Yeah, and, and it really... It often gets left out, and I understand why, because the production side is so interesting, and there's so much ingenuity involved in that. And often, when people write about textiles, or again, anything, any kind of artifact, 
they focus entirely on the production side because it's really interesting and there are challenges. And so, first of all, adding in the commercial side, the commerce, the traders, the merchants, that was, I think, a contribution because I think about economics. And then also my writing, a lot of it is about consumer demand, what forms consumer demand, what is the nature of subjective value? Where does it come from? What what does uh, you know? What's going on with consumers? I guess you could say. And so it was natural for me to include a chapter on consumers in this uh, book. And when I say consumers, I mean people buying in the marketplace, but not only people buying in the marketplace, because there are other types of consumers and other types of consumers of textiles. They include uh, governments that are taxing. And there were lots of lots of governments, lots of states around the world in over history have collected taxes in textiles, in part because they had armies to clothe, among other things, in part because they had courts that wanted fancy cloth. Um, and so, some of the textile uh, taxes were quite onerous. It depended on where, where you were. Um, kings wore clothes. Politicians king, kings wore clothes, and they want really nice clothes. Right. And they also use them as diplomatic gifts, and that's another – or gifts for favorites. So that's a whole uh, old other kind of market. It's not a it's not the sort of free commercial market that we tend to think of, but those are definitely kinds of consumers. And I you know, and there's also people who want cloth and so they attack other people and loot their cloth. And I have a whole uh, thing about Genghis Khan and the Mongols and how they not only looted certain types of cloth, but also captured weavers and moved them across Asia. To, um, so there's, there's a lot to the consumer side. And part, a lot of the chapter is also about consumer resistance to sumptuary laws that tried to tell them what they could, what kinds of textiles they could and could not consume. And people the different ways that different people and different cultures resisted those or uh, broke those or eroded those in, in different ways or, or worked around them. Uh, right. I'm, I'm actually glad you brought that up because I did want to go to that next. So that's excellent. But, uh, but yeah, no, like I, just, just to, on that point before you jump into it, it's just, I, of course, the, as I was reading the chapter, when I hit that point, I thought, of course, no story on anybody consuming anything could be complete without a government or two here and there sticking their hands in that pot or trying to regulate something. And I was fascinated to find out that there was a lot of, of that going on. And in some cities, even there was governments regulating, um, like, you know, there's something you can go from, I should say, to take a step back, you can go from everything from like a simple textile tax, as you said, or a tax on textiles to even apparently regulating people's fashions to try and mess around with the supply coming into the town. Like it was just crazy. Like there was this, again, so much government involvement with this textile business too it was just it was fascinating to me yeah there's tons throughout history there's tons of government involvement with textiles even today it's mm -hmm, un mm -hmm. i mean if you work in the apparel industry part of what you have to do is keep track of unbelievably complicated tariff schedules and 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 things that change and suddenly suddenly everything you see in the in the stores is made out of Rammy, what the heck is that? This was 
this is old, but well, that was had to do with some shift in tariff schedules. Right. <laughs> um, so it, governments have always treated textiles as very important and regulated them in various ways. Um, the most extreme example, uh, which I have in in the book, is about France's calico prohibition because that essentially uh, starting under Louis the Fourteenth, France for seventy three years treated cotton printed cloth, all cottons, prints, and cotton prints, all three as essentially the way the U.S. treats cocaine. Um, <laughs> you, could, you, know, you could have long prison terms for it. You could, you know, traffickers were put to death. It was, it was crazy and it's all about, and it was, it was a form of protectionism, but it was the most extreme form of protectionism ever because instead of just, the reform was putting on a 25% tariff. Right, yeah, oh God. <laughs> that was the good news. That was when the classical liberals won. Was they got right, right. Cl- classical liberal win, 25% yeah, tariff. Yeah, right, exactly, We're exactly. We're making progress. It all depends on what, uh, and it plays an important role actually in, in the evolution of a classical liberal thought, which I didn't know about. But there are also lots of lots of places around the world that have had sumptuary laws, which had usually had to do with sort of keeping people in their place. So in China or in uh, Edo, Japan, you had rules that were meant to keep certain textiles off limits to people who are of, of, of lower ranks. And I, um, however, one of the ones that what interested me even more than those, which I do write about, um, was what happened in early modern Italy, where they were usually in, say, China and Japan, they're trying to keep merchants down because they're they're getting rich and they want to consume these fancy textiles and the people who are sort of aristocrats don't want them to. But in early modern Italy, the merchants are the aristocrats or the merchants are the governing people. And basically what they're trying to do is control their household budgets by saying it's illegal to buy this cloth. So no, honey, you can't have that dress, uh, but it totally doesn't work. And so uh, that's a really interesting interesting story. And one of the things that's funny is that you can find lots of Renaissance art of showing people who are wearing things that were illegal or in, uh, in in some of the more fiscally innovative places like Florence, heavily taxed. So essentially, what they they called it a fine, but it was really like if you pay this tax, you can have the this type of fancy textile or this type of style. Uh, one of the ones that is is fun uh, is not a textile one. Is m- men wore these very short pants. And if they wanted to have them over a certain shortness, they had to pay extra money <laughs> to oh, show God. off their legs. <laughs> that's phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, that's great. And I, I love, again, the story about the, the Italian merchants trying to regulate what merchants do. That That's always an amazing story. And, uh, and, and but, 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 you know, the, the flip side of that, I guess, and one of the things that I sort of felt as I was reading those parts of the book, too, was 
was sort of how the the, the charm of, that comes with the market always seeps through, right? These, these rules only get more extreme and, and, and get more taxing in more ways than one if people somehow still manage to break them and somehow still manage the demand still manages to seep through. So that was kind of one nice part of that that story that I sort of felt as a subtext in between the lines there is that the market always finds that way to provide regardless how upset people are about the the the, the pants and the lengths and, and what cloth are involved in them the middlemen and all these people involved in the process were still getting people their cloth which i i just found very charming right. and 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 you see in some of the different ways that people break the laws or work around might be better to say work around them um you see different cultural values depending on where you are. I'm going to move us ahead to um, to, to the innovators chapter now. Um, again, I have a quote here. You say, throughout history, the desire for more and better cloth has driven technological innovation, from hybrid silkworms to digital knitting, from belt drives to bills of exchange. And, of course, most people think of the 1900s, I guess, as when advanced technological industry kicked it really into high gear. This is where, where most people's frame of mind is when they learn about history. But 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 uh, maybe you have a couple highlights from the 1900s. But, but even before that, are there any specific innovations you'd like to touch on here and, and tease for us here that you might t- chat about in the book that, that you found the most interesting to, to think about? Well, okay. So that chapter actually starts in the 1930s. So that's a, that's, and it goes to the beginning, but the, the most interesting innovations that I, that really kind of were jaw dropping to me are actually in the chapter on thread. And they were these huge silk mills. uh, It's called silk throwing, which basically means twisting silk of threads together mills that were built in, northern Italy, starting really early uh, in like the 1500s, but particularly they they were very big in the 17th century. And they were enormous factories. And these are, I've seen both replicas and actual preserved versions. These are two story machines that are about three meters across, circular, everything's made out of wood or glass, very little metal. Um, And they are incredibly complex. They are driven by water power, which goes down into the basement. and And they were part of these factory complexes that had Everything from taking the silk off of the cocoons to winding the final thread onto bobbins for export to uh, primarily for export to Lyon, which was the silk weaving fact uh, center of Europe in up really until the 19th century. Um, and the idea of some kind of early modern peasant from the Italian countryside coming in and seeing this machine in, say, 1600. It's just, it must have been awe-inspiring because it's pretty, it's pretty damn awe-inspiring now. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, and and so the, the complexity of that and 
and not just the mechanical complexity, but the organizational and managerial complexity of these factories was really, really impressive and completely unknown uh, to the general public um, and and left out of the story. It's it, People who know about it consider it you know, proto-industrial revolution. And why wasn't it the industrial revolution? I have a quote from John Stiles, who's a historian of the industrial revolution. And, and he says, why wasn't that the industrial revolution? There were more of these water-powered uh, factories in northern Italy than there were in Lancashire and in Britain. And the reason was it was silk. It was only it only affected a luxury market. It didn't affect the it didn't affect sort of the, the fabric of society in general. Right. It wasn't it was, you know, you, know, you weren't going to clothe most people. You weren't going to put your flour in sacks made out of silk or, or or put silk sails on your ships or any of that sort of thing. Um, but it is incredibly impressive. And that mm-hmm. was really dumbfounding to me and fascinating. And you can go and see these, their museums, um, which if, if you're ever in the sort of Piedmont area of Northern Italy, I would encourage people to to look into that. And, and as you said, that that's one example of many others that people will find as they read through your book about different types of innovation that are involved with uh, with textiles. And and to me, like too, in, in preparation for this uh, this conversation today, I actually looked up a bunch of other things. Like I watched some YouTube videos, just even on how like weaving actually works and knitting and like the threads and like okay. And I was like, okay, here's a ten minute video, right? And I was like, you know, I'm gonna watch this ten minutes, get a little familiar with this 101 on on let's say it's it's how uh, you know we actually get like a patch of cloth for jeans or something in this factory simple video and uh and i found like i had to pause it after a minute because it was just it was just blowing my mind right there one minute in like okay let's just really quickly explain to you before we get on to this other stuff how these threads are crossed and what patterns they create and how do they get tight and i'm like okay like <laughs> i'm already in over my head here a minute in and it's just crazy the amount of innovation even like as yeah. you said from the beginning where people thought of how to basically get the fiber, make the thread all the way to how it's mass produced. It's just, it's, it's very intricate. Yeah, it is amazing. And I did learn to weave. Uh, while, there was a point early on where I realized, you know, I'm kind of mechanically challenged or spatially challenged. And I better, I'm never really going to understand looms unless I take some weaving lessons. So I went online and I found the Southern California Hand Weavers Guild site and I found the somebody who lived near me to teach me. I took a couple lessons and I really got into it. Uh, and now I own several looms and <laughs> don't weave awesome. as much as I would like to, but it is really fascinating. And there is an amazing variety of looms around the world. Everything from the absolute simplest things to very, very complex ones, even without getting into the industrial ones. And one of the things I'm pretty proud of in the book, which I absolutely could not replicate orally is an explanation of how a jacquard loom works uh, with a very good diagram that uh, Olivier Ballou did for me. Um, because you hear, oh, it, select, it, it uses cards. Well, yeah, but what do they do? And right. it's actually really, really complicated. And it's, it's not surprising that Jacquard, who invented this loom attachment, built on previous ideas that hadn't quite worked. So he finally 
there were a couple of other guys who had earlier versions that didn't quite work, but it's very complicated. And at the time in the 19th century, when it was introduced, it was the most complicated machine in the world. And, and on this note about, about innovators and people that move things forward, let me kind of connect a, another thought to this. So I haven't read your work in the future and its enemies, although I've been told by very smart people that I have to get a point in here. So I want to do it, but I will be reading that as well, just so you know. So I don't have a frame of reference here, but but I have a, a question for you based on wh- what I've, the light research I've done in this area of, of your work. <laughs> so you encourage the readers in, in, in your in, in other places in your work, uh, especially in the future and its enemies, to not take for granted the things that they see all around them as amazing products, uh, you know, and, and really to look at them as human progress in many cases. For instance, uh, I, I've, I've, I've read that you, you talk about there's sort of dichotomy between dynamists and people that thinks things should more, stay more static. Do you think it took real dynamists to connect it to your other work to get fabric to where it is today? Like, do, do you think that there needed to be some sort of natural inclination for people to really want to push that forward as innovators? Of course, not all innovation happens consciously. Or or, right. or do you more feel through all your right. research and your expertise in this topic that a lot of the stuff is sort of the, the small building blocks that Adam Smith talks about just sort of develop over time when someone's really used to something? Well, I think you see both. So there's a tremendous amount of unarticulated knowledge that gets passed down uh, from let's say master to apprentice mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. throughout history, whether it's a mother teaching her daughter how to spin on a drop spindle to uh, master weavers training the next generation, uh, how to weave on a European uh, floor loom, those kinds of things. Or, um, But that said, the real leaps require people to th- to do things that haven't been done before and to allow things that haven't been done before. And there are several themes that come up multiple times in this book. One is the idea of finding ways to share knowledge with, to to codify and share knowledge which is difficult because, and this was the theme in, in the future and its enemies, because a lot of very important knowledge is not articulate. But you you have things like people developing die manuals where they write down what were formerly trade secrets or, uh, or weaving manuals, again, which requires not only writing down what were formerly trade secrets, but finding a way to diagram them. You actually had to have a notation. It's just like musical notation. It doesn't exist in nature. You have to invent it. Um, And even actually in the book, I talk about arithmetic, the kind of uh, calculations where we're used to all those things you learn in elementary school. Somebody had to figure out that too. Um, And and many of those people were doing word problems about textiles. So there's that. And then the other sort of dynamist theme, if you will, is that a lot of times there is short-term disruption. And sometimes that short-term disruption is extreme. And and it's extreme because the gains are so big. So when you have the Industrial Revolution and you suddenly have this huge jump in productivity of, of spinning, 
this is before the Luddites because they were weavers, <laughs> you do have a lot of people who object and, and smash machines and, and such. And you also have suddenly in India, there were widows supporting their families by being great spinners of cotton who suddenly have no income. Right. I mean, these are real things that happen. And yet the sort of progress is real too. And how you deal with those transitions and and how you allow those transitions is very important to sort of material progress and not just material progress, because these things are tied to people's ability to express themselves, to different ways of thinking, to international exchange, to identity, all of these less tangible elements come into it as well. My final question for you today, as our time has pretty much wound down here completely, um, is that in your afterward, you note that textiles are a human story, not a male-female story, but a human story, not a this civilization versus that civilization, this people versus this people story, but again, a human story. A lot of people, you know, I've, I've read many different kinds of books like, like yours in the sense of it's tracing a history of something it's doing x y and z and you know some people end with if it's more academic land with the simple we hope that this contributes to x y and z research and that's that's the end of that in other more general audience friendly books people will say obviously i'm paraphrasing and, and, and being silly but you know it's basically something on the along the lines of you know we hope you enjoyed the ride through the story we told in this book in your case why was it so important for you to to end off the book uh in this way? Why, why was this the final word that ultimately, even though you got very technical at times, we talked about cloth as currency, we, so many things happen in this book, but you wanted to leave the reader with the idea, this is a human story. Yeah. Well, having gone through the process, that was what really struck me about it, was that when you trace this, first of all, almost every human culture, not everyone, because sometimes there, there are exceptions, but almost every human culture has made and used cloth. And it surrounds us from the moment where we're, as soon as we're born, we're wrapped in cloth. And so it is something that's very unifying. And when you study textiles over a long period of time and all around the world, you can't avoid coming away like really impressed with human beings. I mean, you also learned that they can do some really terrible things, but right. in terms of the, uh, on on the innovation side, I mean, people are really smart and inventive and clever and have an eye for beauty. And that was true six thousand years ago when people in ancient Peru were dyeing cloth with indigo, and it was true in the nineteenth century when ways we don't entirely understand uh weavers in in west africa invented new looms and new techniques to produce what became known as kente cloth uh, which is itself a very complicated and interesting form and it was true in the industrial revolution and it was true in the italian renaissance and it was true throughout most of chinese history and you you read about these things and you see them and you can't help being, you know, wanting to join that team, which is the human team. Right. Um, and and the other thing is I am sort of writing against the idea that this is girl stuff mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. it's unimportant or it's incredibly important because women did it because um, women have played throughout history, a major 
role in the production of cloth, but rarely all by themselves. Uh, it, it, again, depended on the culture, uh, how exactly the sexual division of labor worked or whether it was a division of labor, but it's not just a female story either. Uh, so I, I, that's what I want to we tend to think so much about what divides us into categories that I think this is something that can sort of bind us together. And I guess that's what I wanted to leave with. And after reading the book, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it was an amazing story. And I, I do, I did conclude myself. It was a very human story, very relatable. So, so I love that aspect of it. Uh, Virginia, our time is winding down here. I want to remind everyone listening that uh, The Fabric of Civilization, How Textiles Made the World, uh, will be coming out uh, just one week after your, this episode airs. So that's on November 10th. So we definitely encourage everyone to check out that book and, and, and purchase it. But for now, it's only time for our final wrap up here. In each episode, Virginia, I like to let the guests have the last word. And that's what we want to leave them with here is, is your final word on the topic. So we've talked about a lot. Let's try and bring everything full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question today. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on how textiles shape the world and shape society and why that's so important? We've talked about a lot. If we were to leave people with a couple of takeaways, what would you like them to take away in their mind? If you want to understand the nexus between everyday human life and innovation in all its forms, there's no better thing to study than the history of textiles. And so if you read the fabric of civilization, you will learn things about human history that you never knew, uh, some of which will have directly to do with textiles as you think about them today, but others will make you realize the textiles lurking behind history as we know it. I think we'll leave it there. Virginia Pastoral, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 